Chapter Twenty Three of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Three. Oh, Mama, Goodbye. There came a day, and it came suddenly at the last, as those days nearly always do, when Mrs. Hamlin, sitting alone and discontented in her third-story room in a run-down boarding house, received this imperative message brought by a special messenger boy. If you want to see Seraph once more, you must come immediately. There is not an hour to lose. Ruth Burnham. Yet even then she was not prepared for the facts. Her husband had heard reports of the marked improvement in Seraph's case, and had not failed to repeat them to his wife without at any time letting her know the serious nature of the disease, though he himself was well aware of it, and built some hope on the fact that Judge Burnham would, before very long, have but one daughter left to him. He had carried his wife out of town with him for a few days, the better to keep her in ignorance of what might be going on in her home, and also to prevent the possibility of her being urged there without him. They had returned but the night before, and he had been gone from the house but a few moments when this startling summons came. She did not believe it, but it filled her with alarm. What if Seraph were really very ill and wanted to see her? Could she ever forgive herself for staying away? Besides, she longed so for a sight of her, and she believed in her heart that her husband was not only cruel, but foolish in keeping them apart. What possible harm could come to him through her going to see her sister once in a while? Had she not shown him how little influence her family had over her, as compared with him, when she left them at his bidding? While she was thinking these thoughts, she made swift changes in her dress, having taken a resolution to go home at once and learn for herself just how much she had to fear. She was beginning to learn, even thus early in her married life, that her husband could be both cruel and false. It was possible that he was being false to her in this. She would see for herself. So, without more delay than was necessary, she stepped from the train at the old familiar station, which it seemed to her she had not seen before in years, entered her father's carriage which was in waiting, and was driven swiftly to her former home. No one met her at the door, no one was waiting to receive her in the hall. She ran rapidly upstairs, frightened and yet unbelieving. Kate met her in the hall above, grave-faced, low-voiced. "'You can go right in,' she murmured, and inclined her head toward the large cheerful room at the south end, and Minta pushed open the door noiselessly and entered. She had thought that she would rush at once to her sister and wrap her arms about her. Whatever the faults of those two may have been, they had loved each other. But she did not do as she had planned. Instead, she stopped, frightened, in the doorway, her breath coming in great heavy throbs which seemed to make her faint. Her father stood at one side of the great French bedstead, which had been drawn forward almost in front of the open window where the soft spring sunlight was coming in. Near the foot of the bed stood the doctor, watch in hand, but doing nothing, saying nothing, impressing one by the very attitude in which he stood, with the thought that all doing was done, so far as his profession was concerned, and that he was now waiting, for what? 
A strange woman was at the other side of the bed, looking intently, as were all the others, at the face lying quiet on the pillow, and bending over, very near to her, was Mrs. Burnham. All these things Minta, in the doorway, felt rather than saw, felt also the deathly pallor of that face on the pillow with closed eyes. So still she lay that she might even now be dead, for all indication she gave of life. There was one other in the room. At first Minta did not see him. He was kneeling close to the form on the bed, somewhat shielded from view by Mrs. Burnham. He had one quiet hand clasped in both his own, but his face was buried in the same pillow on which the moveless head rested, and only the long-drawn, shuddering breath which he occasionally drew gave token that he was more conscious of what was passing than was the lovely body over which they were keeping their solemn watch. No one spoke to Minta. Judge Burnham gave one swift glance toward her, then turned his eyes instantly back to that quiet face, his own growing perhaps a shade paler than it had been before. At that moment Mrs. Burnham noticed her, and moving slightly to make room, signed to her to approach. It was just then that the head on the pillow stirred once more. The lips parted in a smile, which even Minta, all ignorant as she was, felt was not of earth. Her eyes opened wide, looked upward for a moment, as if reaching beyond the confines of the room, of the earth indeed, then, returning, rested for a moment on her stepmother's face. The smile grew more radiant still, and her voice, always sweet, was filled now with an unearthly sweetness, but all she said was, Oh, Mama, good-bye, and Seraph was gone. Even in that supreme moment, Minta's first impulse was to turn a look of unutterable astonishment upon her stepmother. What miracle was this, that the last ineffable smile and the last tender word of this passing soul should be given to her? Something like the same thought came to Ruth herself, and brought with it such a sense of personal loss as a few weeks before she would not have supposed it possible she could feel in such a connection. You probably know all about the experiences of the next few days without words from me. It was a sorrowful fact that the scenes associated with the house of mourning are too common personal experiences to need description. It was a grand and solemn funeral. I use the two words thoughtfully, the grandeur being of that subdued kind which marks the home not only of wealth but of culture. Judge Burnham was not the man to spare expense on any occasion, certainly not now. So the beautiful clay from which the soul had departed was adorned by every art known to skilled management, and was almost literally embowered in flowers. It was, of course, a time of painful excitement and unrest, the very grief of one of the mourners having so much about it that was unnatural as to wear heavily on the nerves of the others. The poor sister, you will remember, was utterly unprepared for such scenes as these. Ruth had made several efforts during the passing days to send her positive knowledge of Seraph's state, but owing to her absence from home and her husband's wish that she should not know the truth, she had been successfully kept in ignorance. The bitterness of her sorrow and remorse were now pitiful to see. 
all the more terrible were they because no one seemed able to offer her a word of consolation. Ruth, of course, dare not speak at all. Judge Burnham made no attempt to do so, acted, indeed, as though he did not know this other daughter of his was in the house. Yet that he was aware of it was apparent when he roused himself once to this stern statement. Remember, Ruth, if that man dares to come to my door with inquiries, he is not to step inside on any pretext whatever. I look to you to see that my commands in this matter are obeyed to the letter, and remember that in this thing I will not be trifled with. Then indeed she ventured one protest. But Judge Burnham, she is his wife, made so by the laws of God and man. Since this thing is done, and she is to live with him, would it not be wise at such a time as this to allow him to come and speak to her if he will? Then she was glared upon with a fierceness that startled her. You do not know what you are talking about, he said at last. No, it would not be better to do any such thing. He has no right to be her husband. He is a perjured villain, and he knows it. He has deceived her as well as me, but she chose her own lot and must abide by it. So will I abide by my determination, and I will repeat it. Under no pretext whatever shall that man step inside my door. If she wants him yet, she must go to him. I have no power to control her, but I have power to hold myself aloof from him and from her, since she has chosen between us, and I shall do so. And, Ruth, I would be grateful to you if you would not mention this thing to me again. And then Ruth knew, more fully than she had before, that this fierce nature was entirely unsubdued. It was not the time to say it, nor indeed was there any use in ever saying it, but it was not in her nature not to recall once more the fact that he had allowed this man, over whose very name his face now darkened, to lounge in his parlors evening after evening in friendly relations with the daughter who had finally yielded to his influence, and had not only made no sign of disapproval, but had sneered at the warnings that came to him. What right had he to be surprised or dismayed at the result? But he was destined to hear more on this hateful subject. His daughter, under the spell of a written communication from her husband, made successful effort to waylay her father, while Seraph still lay in unearthly beauty in that back parlor, and with tears and sobs and pitiful appeals which were sufficiently honest to carry much weight with them, besought him to forgive her, to reinstate her once more in the home she had missed, and see how dutiful and loving and comforting she could be to him. Very humble she was, and penitent. And he, with all the father stirred within him, with the memory of the fact that she was now the only daughter left him, yet resisted the touch of her caressing arms, and held aloof from her, and walked the floor, his face still stern, but his chin quivered, and his eyes were dimmed with a film of tears. At last he spoke. I have not meant to be severe. I have believed myself to be a very indulgent father. Too indulgent I have had reason to think, during these later months of my bitter experience. Had I been less so, you would never have been drawn into the toils of the man who stole you from me. You chose between us, however, after you were duly warned, and by me, 
and I had meant that you should abide by your choice. But there are other arguments than those you bring to-night, that have been influencing me of late. Some of them might surprise you if I gave them. I will not go into details now. I will merely say that I have resolved to do what I thought I should never do, offer you your home again. It is a desolated and disgraced home, disgraced by your own act, and the Burnham name never wore a stain before. But, despite it all, if you choose to come back to the home and the name, and pledge yourself never to hold another conversation with the man who has wronged us all, I will receive you again as my daughter, even in the face of a gaping world. Also, I will take measures that will forever prevent your being annoyed by the man who would like to claim you for the sake of the money that he thinks will be yours. The idea of the villain supposing that one cent of my money will ever pass through his hands. Even at such a time, Judge Burnham could not keep the subdued tones of voice that became the house, but let them rise into anger with the last sentence. I am inclined to think he misunderstood his daughter as entirely as it is possible for a man to misunderstand a woman. She, too, lost her self-control and gave free rein to her passionate tongue. She had not been for weeks in the constant society of a bad man without having been influenced thereby, and many of the bitter things that she poured out in her wrath she believed to be true. She told her father that he was under the spell of a woman who hated her, and who had hated the daughter lying dead in the next room, and who had made both their lives bitter for them all these years. That it was she who had so prejudiced him against her husband that he would allow himself to be neither reasonable nor even respectable in the eyes of the world. And then she assured him that she knew how things looked to this terrible ogre, the world, of which he was so afraid, and that he might be entirely certain the world should hear just how a father, led round by a second wife, could be made not only to so embitter the life of one of them that she welcomed the grave as a release, but could actually bring himself to all but forcing the other to give up her husband and her married name in return for being received again into a home which she hated. And then she assured him that she had chosen and was glad to remember that she had, and that nothing, ever, not even the honor of being recognized before the world as belonging to the Burnham race, should make her desert her husband even for a day that she would go back to him that very night, and that she wanted nothing from this house, or from the people to whom it belonged, from this time forth. He listened to this outburst of mingled passion and pain at first, in a kind of bewilderment, then, as she made some accusations, which, in the light of his recent experiences, he knew were absolutely false, his anger rose almost to white heat. But as her passionate torrent of words went on, gathering force as they were poured out, he reached the point where his well-trained self-control began to assert its power, and, deceiving her by the very calm with which he listened, he waited before her in absolute silence until she paused for breath. "'Are you quite through?' he asked at last, when she had been silent for a moment. "'Because if you are not, I would advise you to continue.' It might not be wise to go from here with any pent-up torrent of anger such as you have exhibited. An outburst in other places 
might be more dangerous than it will be here. I am glad you have told me all this. It makes plain much that I have of late suspected. It reveals some things to me much more clearly than I could have hoped to understand them from any source. But if you have really nothing further to say, I will add just a few plain words, very easy to understand. You may, since you are in the house, if you choose, remain during the funeral services of my daughter. As soon after that hour, as you can conveniently do so, I shall have to ask you to leave my house, and I wish you distinctly to understand that you are not to return to it at any time nor under any pretext. I understand you to say that you had chosen between us. Very well. You had the opportunity, and can blame no one but yourself for having made use of it. What I require is that you shall abide by your decision. From this time forth I will not trouble you to call me by the name which has sheltered you all these years, and you need not even burden your conscience by thinking of me as your father. You have my full permission to disown me entirely, and to say to the world whatever you and your precious husband please. The probability is, you will learn in time that my reputation will be equal to the shock of even the withdrawal of his favor. Now, as it is getting late, I will not detain you further, but will bid you good night, Mrs. Hamlin. He opened his library door and ceremoniously bowed his daughter out. And the other daughter lay but a few steps from them, her face still glorified by that gleam from heaven which had rested on it, embowered in flowers. End of chapter 23 Recording by Tricia G.